Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be discussing the strengths-based biopsychosocial approach to recovery from bipolar disorder. If you have any questions, remember you can type your um, questions in the, in the chat window, and I'll get to it as soon as I can. Over the next 45 minutes to an hour, we're going to discuss what bipolar is, what causes bipolar, and how to mitigate it using either emotional, mental, physical, or environmental interventions or some combination therein. So we're going to look at triggers, vulnerabilities, as well as interventions. And then we want to move on to helping um, tailor this. We know, remember, we're talking about a strengths-based perspective to help people understand their bipolar disorder. What specifically triggers their depression, their manic episodes? Um, what are their warning signs and what do their symptoms look like? When they're in a manic episode, what does that look like for them? And finally, we'll look at some co-occurring conditions and interventions. So why do we care? Uncontrolled bipolar disorder puts people at risk for suicide, addictions and addictions relapse, and really extreme risk-taking behavior. So even if your client doesn't already have a history of um, suicidal ideation or addiction, it's possible that in one of these episodes they could um, decompensate to that point. Poorly controlled bipolar disorder can leave people feeling hopeless and helpless. Now, some people really like the manic episodes. They really like the highs, but the lows are so low that it can feel just completely oppressive. Well-controlled bipolar, like well-controlled addictions, help a person feel happy, optimistic, motivated, and energized. So when the person is in remission, if you will, they are going to feel happy. It's not going to be Eeyore. It's not going to be just blah. If that's how they're feeling, we need to talk about that because that's not going to be something that's going to sustain long-term recovery. Bipolar is a brain disorder that causes unusual shifts in mood and energy, activity levels, and the ability to carry out day-to-day -day tasks. You know, we've worked with people bipolar, with bipolar. It used to be called manic depressive disorder. However you want to look at it, and we're not going to get into the specific nuances of cyclothymic um, bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. 
that in my mind for a lot of our clients is less important in the recovery process as is prevention looking at vulnerabilities and addressing the symptoms themselves obviously if someone is in a psychotic state they're going to have to have different interventions than someone who is hypomanic or manic without psychotic features but you know we'll get into that one of the things I do want to point out, um, especially with a lot of the stuff in the news uh, lately, is the fact that there are a lot of people with um, bipolar disorder who are living very productive, very happy lives. So I don't want our patients to think, and I don't want their family to think or their community to think, that if someone has bipolar disorder, they're crazy. I don't like that word anyway. Um, but some of the people that do have bipolar disorder include Mel Gibson, Demi Lovato, Axl Rose, Britney Spears, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Mark Vonnegut, and Amy Winehouse. Now, two examples of people with bipolar disorder who lost their battle um, are Lee Thompson Young and Robin Williams. Now, we can look at, was it just the bipolar or was there other stuff going on? You know, there would be a whole lot of other things to look at and not just point fingers necessarily at the bipolar disorder. But I do want to point out that when they were in a phase where their uh, bipolar was well-controlled, even Lee Thompson Young and Robin Williams were very, very prolific, very talented people that, by all reports, seemed to be living a relatively happy, high-quality life. So what causes bipolar disorder? Um, imbalances in neurochemicals, especially dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. Do I sound like a broken record yet? Huh? Imbalances can be genetic. There is a high um, genetic correlation between genetics and bipolar disorder. So if somebody has a family history, they may eventually develop bipolar disorder. It can be triggered by sex hormone changes or stress hormone changes. And I want it to be specific because typically when I say hormone, people think estrogen and testosterone. And that's not the, those aren't the only hormones. We're talking about cortisol, thyroxine. We're talking about our neurotransmitters. We're talking about our um, uh, thyroid hormones. There's a lot of different things that when they get wonky um, can trigger a bipolar episode. More than 1 in 50 adults are classified as having bipolar disorder in any 12-month period. So basically, anytime you go to church, go to work, go to Walmart, you're probably going to be in the company of more than 50 people or more than 100 people. And so that means there's at least, in a, in a group of 100 people, that means there's at least two people with bipolar disorder in there. So I want you to think about that because we'll go into crowds of 100, 150, 400 people and we'll think that everybody is happy, healthy, and normal. Um, and there are a lot of people who may have bipolar, but it's well-controlled. It's well-controlled so you don't know. People with bipolar don't walk around screaming, you know, I've got bipolar disorder. It's important to understand what bipolar looks like for people, and I harp on this a lot, and I'm going to continue to, that um, there are a lot of overlaps in symptoms. Bipolar disorder is depression and mani mania. So when we're talking about depression, we already know that um, the symptoms of depression are feeling sad, down, empty, and hopeless, having very little energy, and decreased activity levels. We know these things can be caused by sleeping changes, can be caused by stress, can be caused by thy thyroid problems, in addition to being caused by neurochemical imbalances. So 
Just because someone has very little energy or decreased activity, uh, we don't want to necessarily automatically say, well, they're depressed. Sleeping changes, feeling worried and empty, trouble concentrating, trouble remembering things, eating too much or too little, and feeling tired or slowed down. So your typical feelings of depression, and most people are pretty familiar with those, um, and they may not realize the eating changes and the sleeping changes um, are symptoms. But when people come to your office and they say, I'm depressed, we have a pretty good idea that they're feeling sad, blue, and apathetic at, at the very least. Mania is a little bit different. People have a hard time um, until it becomes like full-blown mania. Hypermanic episodes often go um, undiagnosed for a long, long time because people don't think of it as a mental health disorder. They don't see somebody struggling. They don't see somebody just completely miserable. People in a manic episode feel very up, high, or elated. They have a lot of energy and increased activity levels and may feel jumpy or wired. And not to give them a bad name, but think about chihuahuas. You know, when they get really excited, um, you know, they can chase a leaf when it blows. Have trouble sleeping because they've got so much energy. And they may talk really fast about a lot of different things and not take a breath, and you just really want them to take a breath because you're, they're wearing you out just talking so fast. You get the idea. Uh, my son, bless his heart, he's, he's gifted, and his mind goes a million miles a minute, and sometimes so does his mouth. And we'll sit at the dinner table, and there are times where I'm just like, love bug, take a breath for me, please, <laughs> because I've got to catch up. But when you're around someone who is talking really fast about a lot of different things, um, be aware that it may be bipolar, it may be giftedness, it may be they're just really, really excited. Uh, but that's a clue that something may be going on. They also may be agitated, irritable, or touchy. You know, they, they're just like, leave me alone. I've got to go do this. Uh, they can't sit still. They can't be confined. They feel like their thoughts are going very fast, not just their words, but their thoughts. Everything is racing through their mind. And they think they can do a lot of things at once. Now, remember, a lot of manic episodes, there, it's not an hour thing. It's something that lasts for days or weeks. So if somebody is feeling up high and elated, not sleeping much, um, they feel like their thoughts are racing and they start, start trying to do a whole lot of things at once, things are going to fall apart at a certain point. Um, the other thing that we see a lot, which is one of the clinical presentations that actually ends up bringing people to treatment, obviously, is engaging in risky or reckless behavior. Um, people with, uh, in a manic episode, tend to kind of be adrenaline junkies. They want to get that rush. They think they can do anything. They feel 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Now, remember, just like depression is on sort of a continuum, so is mania. So if someone is not just outright manic um, or displaying psychotic um, symptoms, I don't want to rule out the fact that they may be in the middle of a hypomanic episode. So if it's something that is causing a change from what is normal for them, then we need to take a look at it. It may be nothing. It may be they're under a whole lot of stress right now. It, you know, let's start exploring and see what it is. Mixed episodes include symptoms of both being manic and depressed. For example, fearing, very, feeling very sad, empty, and hopeless, but also having a lot of energy and not being able to sleep. So imagine what that's like for that person. That would really suck. I'm sorry. But this is a 
place where people often are in a whole lot of danger for becoming suicidal because they can't sleep and they've got a lot of energy and they really want to fix it, but they just, they're hopeless and they don't see anything ever getting better. So they have energy, but no direction, no hope. First thing to do, start keeping a life chart, ideally for three to six months. And most people look at me and they're like, what? Three to six months can be before treatment starts, as soon as treatment starts, and then throughout treatment. When we look at the actual definition of assessment, assessment is an ongoing process. So when we have clients come in for treatment, come in for their initial assessment, we get an idea of what's going on with their sleep, their dietary habits, their exercise, their life stressors, their hormones. Now, specifically in this one, we are talking about estrogen and women and bipolar symptoms, what symptoms that particular person has. And I generally just make a very simple chart and have them use like a Likert scale, one being is not a problem, um, uh, not a problem at all, and five being it's a huge problem or whatever works for your particular clients. Um, so some of the things that we do want to help clients understand is to normalize what's going on in their environment. Um, and a question comes in, how to help a client distinguish between being happy and being manic? And the first thing I'm going to ask them is, what does happy look like to you? Um, and I want them to tell me, you know, when their kids are happy, what does that look like? When their friends are happy, what does that look like? Um, when they're happy, obviously, what does that look like? And then... How do they differentiate? And I'll ask them to tell me, what does it look like for you when you're in a manic episode? And yeah, sometimes when we're really happy, we don't need to sleep as much, but we're not going to be up for days. We're not going to be um, just really struggling to get to sleep. When we're really happy, we may be excited and talking quickly. Now, happiness, you know, that level of happiness and elation, normally, you know, it ebbs and flows throughout the day. It's not going to last for weeks or months. It's not going to have a negative impact on our daily functioning. So, and, and that's another place where I draw a line for people. And I say, you know, we want to look at the stuff that's causing you clinically significant distress, as the DSM would say. Is it causing you problems in your relationships? If so, then let's look at why. Is it causing you problems at work? in your day-to-day um, -day activities, in your, in your health behaviors. And if it is, then we might want to look at why it's causing problems and if it is a manic episode. If it's not causing problems and the person is happy, you know, does it need intervention? Is it something that we need to start poking the bear? Because I don't want to take the wind out of their sails. The other thing is for people is it's important to understand what triggers their bipolar. Um, triggers for bipolar can be things that increase negativity, um, increase depression, increase stress levels. So if they have negative thinking patterns and they use a lot of cognitive distortions, even when they are not in the midst of a major depressive episode, then it's going to be important to address that because we don't want them constantly kind of pushing themselves towards that negativity and depression. Physically, Triggers can be not getting enough sleep. There's actually been studies that have shown that when people don't get enough sleep, if they have bipolar, they are at risk of triggering a bipolar episode. We also know that inadequate sleep contrib contributes to fatigue, lethargy, difficulty concentrating, which people can interpret as depression.
Avoid opiate and sedative medications. You know, let's avoid our depressants so we don't create a depressive episode. Alcohol is a depressant. Yes, it makes people feel um, disinhibited. It makes people feel more relaxed initially. But the reason it does that is because it's monkeying with those neurotransmitters and can actually trigger sort of a rebound depression. Uh, the other thing for people to realize is there's almost two phases, if you will, to alcohol. When it first gets in the body, it's a disinhibitor, it's a depressant. As it starts to wear off, there tends to be a um, anxiety reaction, which is why a lot of people take a second drink to tame that anxiety. It's also the same reason that alcohol detoxification can be life-threatening because when people go into that stimulant phase, that anxiety phase, their blood pressure goes right up. Situational triggers for depressive episodes. We want to have them do a coping skills inventory and identify how they cope. You know, what's going on in situations that really make you depressed? And how can you address those? How can you get social support? So the first thing is identifying what situational things trigger your depression. Um, my mother's husband, his family passed away in a, in a fire, you know, back in the 60s. But it's still very, very real for him because they died on Christmas Eve. So situationally, Christmas really is not a good time for him. So understanding that ahead of time and understanding going into this situation is probably going to trigger some level of depression. He can deal with it so it doesn't completely end up in a, in a major depressive episode. Interpersonally, what things might trigger your depression? Friends that aren't supportive, um, people that are hateful, being in situations that you have a sense that you're being evaluated or judged. Whatever it is for that person, interpersonally, what triggers your depression? How do you deal with it? Have them identify supportive friends. Learn about interpersonal behaviors that trigger you and ways to deal with them. So if somebody has a certain look, you know, there are certain looks that our parents gave us or certain looks that somebody gave us one time that just rub us the wrong way now. Understanding that transference reaction and how to deal with it. Um, when, you know, I've got teenagers at home and they have the eye roll and I swear I can hear their eyes rolling. But... <laughs> That just grinds my gears when they roll their eyes at me. So getting angry, is that going to do a whole lot of good? No. So we need I need, in that particular situation, to look at how can I handle this so I don't get angry, I don't ex get exhausted. Um, obviously, that doesn't trigger my depression. But understanding that there are certain nonverbals people may communicate and certain ways they may behave that can lead to depression. Figuring out how to deal with that so you can function and actually develop meaningful positive relationships and then environmental triggers for depression create a cheerful calm safe environment now think about a place you've been that you walked into and you're like oh this is nasty um, there are certain colors i associate with institutionalization and sort of depressive situations there's kind of a pukey blue gray um, that it's just cold that's not the kind of environment I want to be in if I know that I tend to have depressive feelings. If you're in an environment like that and you can't paint the walls, which sometimes that's the way it is, how can you cheer it up? Can you put screensavers out? 
Um, can you put pictures on the walls? What can you do so the environment is not depressing, stressful, and, and cold? And then environmentally, also try to eliminate negativity from the media and IRL in real life environment. Try not to put yourself in a situation if you have a lot of negative people in your social media network. You may want to start unfollowing them or not even getting on social media. Um, if you're in a negative environment, try to remove yourself. If the news always stresses you out, I'm not saying completely unplug from the news. We need to stay in touch with stuff. But we don't necessarily need to watch the news every single day and hear all the commentary. You know, you can read Google News headlines and pr get a pretty good idea. If you're under a lot of stress, don't add to your stress level. Um, and look at other things in your real-life environment that may kind of induce negativity and eliminate them. Mania. Mania is a little bit harder because we know that there are a lot of things that trigger depression, and we just went through all this. But mania is, is not like you do something and all of a sudden you're in a manic episode, unless it is, of course, um, taking some antidepressants, which are known to trigger uh, manic episodes. We want to encourage clients to avoid stimulant medications or drugs, and that includes ADHD medications. If they're prescribed these, they need to communicate with their doctor how they're feeling. There may be a perfectly good reason, and it may be very productive for them to be on these medications. Um, caffeine, appetite suppressants, decongestants, pre-workout supplements. We want to avoid those when possible. If we've got somebody who tends to have manic episodes, um, sleep deprivation is another one we want them to avoid. We also don't want people to combine stimulant medications with caffeine because it's like, you know, intensifying stuff. So encourage clients to be aware of what they're putting in their body and how it might, may trigger a manic episode. Thyroid and steroid medications. If you have low thyroid, you may be taking something to increase your thyroid hormones, which can possibly trigger a manic episode. It's just important to be aware. Not saying you can't treat the thyroid issue, um, but medications may need to be adjusted. Steroid medications like prednisone can also trigger a manic episode if you have to take it. Those are usually real short course stuff anyway. Let your doctor know ahead of time. That way you can prepare and plan for it if there's if there's a potential for a problem. Like I said a few minutes ago, things like certain antidepressants, if, if a person is bipolar and they take an antidepressant, it can trigger a manic episode. Let's think about that. They are potentially bipolar, which we know involves serotonin. They take an antidepressant, which increases their serotonin, which could kick off a manic episode. So, SAMe, 5-HTP are two herbal antidepressant alternatives that are so available right now. Um, and they scare the living daylights out of me because I've seen a lot of clients um, take them and have very bad results. So if your clients are going to take these, if they're, you know, determined they're going to improve their mood this way, even if they're only theoretically going to take it during a depressive episode, they need to talk and be under close supervision by their physician. Warning signs and interventions. So my question to my clients is, when you have a depressive episode coming on, let's think about your last one. What were the warning signs a month before, 
a week before that there may be something building. And a lot of times we're going to be looking at stress levels, sleeping, um, irritability. And I'm going to say, how do you deal with those things? So I'll ask them thinking changes. You know, again, thinking back to this last depressive episode, or maybe your last three, if you can remember all of them. How do your thought patterns change when you start going down that hill? Does it get more negative, more pessimistic, foggier, difficulty concentrating? What's going on where you know that things are kind of starting to go south? How do you deal with it? Both healthfully, you know, what are the healthy ways you do deal with it? And unhealthfully, you know, maybe they start self-medicating or engaging in addictive behaviors more. I'd rather know that so we can deal with it and have them sweep it under the rug because they're too ashamed to tell me. So I ask about different things if they don't seem to be overly forthcoming. Physically, when you have a depressive episode coming on, most people don't just wake up in the morning and they're clinically depressed. Just like most people don't wake up in the morning and they're addicted or relapsing. There's a huge train of stuff leading up to it. So physically, are you having low energy, difficulty sleeping, eating changes, irritability? And I also ask them, you know, going back to triggers and, and vulnerabilities, when you are neglecting your sleep, when you are not eating well, can this trigger a depressive episode? So sleeping or eating changes may be because they're not hungry or they can't sleep or because there's too much stress, they're not paying attention to themselves, they're on autopilot, they're not living mindfully. So we... We look at those things. This gives me a clue as to what are the first signs. And when this person typically goes into a depressive episode, what caused it? Where did it come from? Um, emotionally, sadness. I mean, if you feel depression coming on, the sadness and the apathy um, is probably going to be present to some degree. Uh, interpersonally, a lot of times as people start to get depressed, they'll start withdrawing. They just won't have the time or the patience for people. I'm over it. I can't deal with another person. So interpersonally, I want to know what happens. Do you withdraw? Do you start getting resentful of people? They're just always in, in your way and always doing things to irritate you. Are you negative about things and people? You're looking at everybody's flaws, which means you're probably also looking at all your own flaws. So interpersonally, how does your behavior change leading up to a depressive episode because we know that as your sleeping gets bad as your eating gets bad as your cognitions you know get more negative as your concentration goes down and as you start to see the world as a pretty unhappy place guess what you're going to start to get depressed even if you weren't headed that way in the first place if you start acting this way you're going to start feeling kind of depressed now i'm not saying that a person who doesn't normally have depression will trigger a major depressive episode just by doing this, but I think it's important to understand that things that we do affect our body's um, reaction and affects our brain's reaction and the way it produces neurochemicals. And as a depressive episode comes on, most people can also see a change in their environment. They just start not caring. It's like, I don't have the energy to do the dishes. I'll do them tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and goes, more dishes get in the sink. Before you know it, you're throwing a towel over it, just so people don't see how many dishes are there. Uh, <laughs> so disarray or dirtiness, things that you wouldn't normally do. And a lack, and I didn't know where to put it for personal hygiene, 
but the more people get depressed, the less they pay attention to their personal hygiene. It's like, let's see, am I going to get out of bed and take a shower or, you know, I'm not going to see anybody. I'm just going to stay here. For mania, you know, again, we're looking at what does it look like for this person before their last manic or hypomanic episode. Some people will say, and if they're on um, antidepressant medications or they're on other anti-anxiety medications, if they miss a dose, they may note that that is sort of the beginning. Or if they increase their um, serotonin, their SSRIs, they also may notice that they trigger a manic episode. And remember I said it's not necessarily going to, SSRIs are not necessarily going to trigger a bipolar episode, but it is important to be aware that it can. Um, so I don't want people to turn away medication and go, no, I can't take that ever and always. Um, we need to stay up on the current research. And there is some research that says that in certain circumstances, SSRIs and SNRIs may be helpful. Um, remembering back to when we talked about moods are controlled by our neurotransmitters, which are in a balance. So, and depression can be caused by too much or too little serotonin. Um, anxiety can be caused by too much serotonin. So when we're looking at the SSRIs, um, we do want to look at what's causing this person's depression. And so if they already had enough serotonin or maybe too much, which was causing their depression, and you give them more serotonin, then it may trigger the, the, the balancing act that triggers a man manic episode. We don't know exactly. So, you know, just be aware. And when clients come to you, I assume, um, I always put, put the ball in the doctor's court. If the doctor prescribed it, let's just keep talking about what their symptoms and side effects are. And if they're doing well, you know, that's just peachy king with me. Mania, we see racing thoughts, heightened creativity. And this is one of the reasons a lot of people, especially artists, um, don't want to give up the manic side because they can get hyper-focused and write, you know, five or ten songs in one night. Um, they can have heightened creativity. They can feel their uber selves, if you will. Impulsivity and poor judgment um, and this hyper-focus. So there may be a lot of things that are going on. So if a person starts not needing as much sleep, they feel a hyper-focus, they have heightened creativity. And again, a lot of times with mania, you're going to see some element of speeding up. It's important to make sure that the clients are aware of that in their behavior. Most of the time, they don't just wake up in a florid manic episode. There's a buildup of a certain degree. Um, physically, if they have difficulty sleeping or sitting still. Now, you see me. When I present, I talk with my hands. I don't sit still very well. I'm not manic. I am just hyper. <laughs> so we want to make sure to normalize behaviors for people. Difficulty sleeping. If you're not able to sleep more than an hour or two, that's a big problem. Or if your sleeping patterns change from what they normally were. Again, ask the clients themselves, when your manic episodes are getting ready to kick off, what do you notice is different a week before? Um, elation, excitedness, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled if people are happy. What scares me a little bit more is if they suddenly start take, going bungee jumping and taking skydiving lessons, and that's not anything they've ever talked about in the past. I'm like, okay. Um, you know, maybe they're just going down a bucket list, or there may be something going on that is 
being triggered by a manic episode. Interpersonally, a lot of people in a manic or hypomanic episode tend to look very ADHD. They have difficulty concentrating, they're interrupting, they're, they may get angry and irritable if you won't pay attention or if you can't keep up with them because their mind is going so fast and their thoughts are going so fast. And if you can't keep up, it's just really, really frustrating for them. So interpersonally, do your relationships change? Ask around. Ask your family, friends, coworkers that know about your diagnosis. Before this happens, do you, are there any signs that you see? Are there any things, any, is there anything that I do? Some people will start going out and spending like crazy. They're just like shopping their little feet off or their little fingers that they're shopping online. So anything that is starting to be done to excess that isn't normally done to excess may indicate that a manic episode is coming on. And environmental triggers, not triggers, but warning signs typically vary. Um, you know, I can't even think of one that I can say, you know, I typically see this in people. They can become obsessively clean. They can just throw stuff in disarray because their mind is racing. They don't care about cleaning. They'd rather go out and do things that are a whole lot more fun. Most of the time, it's extreme, though. So environmentally, if they're going to do something, you know, they may decide that, guess what? I'm going to remodel the house, not I'm going to paint a wall. Nah, that's too easy. <laughs> I'm going to rip out all the floors and move a couple walls. Hmm. Let's think about that for a second. When people are leading up to a hypomanic or manic episode, a lot of times their goals and their objectives tend to be a whole lot more grandiose. So like I said, instead of painting the baseboards, they are going to start moving walls around. One of the biggest problems we have with people with bipolar disorder is treatment compliance. And, and I kind of alluded to this earlier. When they're depressed, the depression is oppressive. In hypomania, there, there may be, um, you know, a, a lighter depression, if you will, uh, persistent depressive disorder, what we used to call dysthymia, but it still is not fun. Um, so, yeah, most people, when they're in a depressive episode, want to feel better. They want to be treatment compliant. There's some motivation there. Uh, so it's important to understand, um, and I got these backwards, oh, well, um, the benefits of eliminating your depressive episodes. Most people can just list those out. It's like, great, you know, let's, let's keep a focus on that. We also want to look at the drawbacks to eliminating their depressive episodes. If I were no longer depressed, how would I feel? Um, and we want to look at the consequences. Sometimes I break it out for them emotionally. If you eliminate your depression, how are you going to feel? How do you expect to feel? Mentally, what's going to be different? Physically, how are you going to feel different and what's going to be different? And socially, with your family, with your friends, at, at work, what's going to be different if you eliminate your depression for the positive? What, what are the benefits to this? What are the drawbacks emotionally if you eliminate your depression? Most of the time, they're going to look at you like you got three heads and be like, uh, nothing. Um, <laughs> drawbacks to eliminating your depression mentally, physically, and socially. Most of the time, again, people, when they're in a depressive episode, are really motivated for treatment. So there's a, not a lot for their overarching goal that they're going to say, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not willing to do that. Now, there could be drawbacks to certain interventions, like taking medication, changing their sleep habits, um, you know, 
going through your specific goals to eliminate the depression. But generally, people are motivated, and they're going to be treatment compliant. In a manic episode, they are happy. They're elated. They're energetic. They are the complete opposite of how they feel when they're depressed and they're miserable. A lot of times, people don't want to get rid of that. And unfortunately, to achieve remission, a lot of times we've got to bring everything more towards the midline. Uh, Not saying that we want people to feel just okay. You know, I want people to have happy, elated days. But we can't be like that all the time. It's, It's just not, it's not reality. So we want to talk about what are the benefits to eliminating the mania. Now, for some people, it may be that they eliminate the unbridled spending Um, They can focus better at work and they're not getting in trouble because they're less impulsive. What are, again, what are the benefits? Why would you want to get rid of this high, high, high? Um, Then we want to look at the drawbacks. And this is really important for people with um, bipolar. And it's almost more important for people with hypomania because people with hypomania have a harder time seeing the problems that it's causing. And again, if it's not causing problems... I'm going to be less, they're going to be a whole lot less motivated to address it, and I'm going to be less inclined to start trying to mess with it or encourage them to mess with it. But we do want to look at what are, what are the drawbacks to eliminating the mania emotionally. Yeah, you're going to be a little flatter. You won't be high, high, high all the time. But what can you do to get those rushes? What makes you really, really happy? Um, mentally, what's going to change? For some people, it could be a drawback or it could be a benefit when they have racing thoughts. So we want to look at, you know, specifically for you, when you are concentrating better, but your thoughts aren't racing, um, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Physically, is it a drawback that you're going to need to sleep more? You know, when I say sleep more, I mean sleep like, you know, six hours a night instead of one or two. Um, And then socially, how is it going to impact your relationships? Are there drawbacks? Some people feel that they're a whole lot more fun and they're the life of the party when they're in a manic episode, so they get more attention as opposed to when they are in their, you know, remission state. So general techniques, how do we deal with it? Well, the first thing I ask clients is, well, you've been dealing with it up till now, so how do you deal with it? What are you willing to do now to deal with it? You know, and I may put out a whole menu of options, you know, medication, therapy, exercise, acupuncture. What is it that you think is going to help you? Um, emotionally, if we look at emotional interventions, the first place I go, and, you know, this kind of is across the board, is mindfulness. Because it prevents an episode, and depressive or manic, it doesn't matter to me, it prevents episodes from sneaking up. If people are more mindful of, their warning signs that something's fixing to happen, then they are going to be able to intervene. We also want them to um, start engaging in behaviors that prevent vulnerabilities, which basically means living a healthy, balanced lifestyle. So if they're mindful of what their needs are, they're mindful of their symptoms, and they are getting enough sleep, eating a good diet, theoretically getting some exercise, um, and keeping stress at bay, we're going to be you know, on a good path. Now, what that looks like for your clients, or for each individual client, is going to be different. But we do want to start encouraging, encouraging them to understand the concept of vulnerabilities and understand the concept of mindfulness 
so they can start living sort of more in harmony with who they are and what they need. Stress reduction, so important. When we're under a lot of stress, our body is, you know, secreting all of those fight-or-flight hormones. It's exhausting on the body. It can trigger depression. It can trigger anxiety. It can trigger a whole lot of stuff. Stress is designed to tell you to do something, to change something, not to add more stress, and not just to sit there and dwell on it. So let's look at what's causing your stress. My first thing, first place I start is time management. If somebody has a lot of stress, what's causing the stress in your life? Do you have too much going on? Most people do. Most of us feel like we've got so much going on, we just can't even begin to juggle all the balls we've got in the air. So we'll look at that and try to make that more manageable. Then we're also going to look at using some cognitive processing therapy techniques to identify stressors, things that someone is anxious about, and counter them, saying, what evidence do I have that this is true? If I am feeling stressed out, anxious, worried, um, let's take a look at the cognitive distortions, let's identify what's really going on, and let's create a plan to deal with it. Anger management, it's another one to help people because if someone is angry a lot, it's the fight or flight reaction, keep going back to it, it's exhausting. So we need to help people understand their anger triggers, anger, resentment, guilt, jealousy, all of that. What is the stuff that makes you feel nasty? And when I say nasty, I mean just mean, grumpy, cranky, angry. Um, There should be a bunch of dwarfs by those names, but I digress. Anyhow, develop a plan for de-escalation. So when you start getting stressed out, resentful, you start feeling that green-eyed monster, how do you calm yourself down? You get cut off in traffic, the line at the grocery store is not going fast enough, one of your coworkers irritates you. What do you do? Begin addressing anger triggers to maintain control of your own energy. And I like this thought because I encourage people to understand anger as when you have this unbridled anger at somebody and you're not doing anything about it, all you're doing is giving them your power. You're saying, here's my energy because I've got it all tied up in you right now. Most people don't want to do that, especially not at somebody that they're angry with. (laughs) They want to keep their energy. They want to keep their power. Anger is about regaining power. And I can't go out without saying something about happiness. Schedule it in. If we don't schedule it in, sometimes we don't pay attention to it. Ask clients, what makes you happy? And let's do more of it. You know, if going out and chasing bunny rabbits makes you happy, then find a place with bunny rabbits. Uh, Schedule a belly laugh every day. We talked about this in one of the other presentations. I love listening to little kids laugh. I like seeing stupid animal tricks. Uh, It doesn't take much to make me laugh. But a good belly laugh releases endorphins and can help balance out some of those neurotransmitters. The other thing is finding comedians that you really like. And then keep a good thing silver lining gratitude journal. Whatever you want to call it. At the end of the day, encourage people to identify three things that happened that were good. Or look at the silver lining. This happened that was kind of icky, but, you know, it could have been worse. So identify the silver lining or what what positive came out of this. It rained today, so I'm going to have to wash my car again, but I don't have to water my garden. The other way to look at it is a gratitude journal. You know, when I get home today, my house is going to be a mess, probably. But 
the awesome thing about that is it means that my kids were home and they were enjoying themselves and they were probably playing with the dogs and there's going to be dog toys everywhere. So, you know, yeah, would I like to have a, a clean house? Yeah, but I prefer the alternative. I prefer the kids to be happy and the dogs to be happy and, you know, I can clean up some dog toys. So trying to find the optimistic way to look at stuff is, you know, going to help maintain happiness because then when people start getting negative, they can go back and say, okay, it's not always negative. Mentally, we want to address that all or none thinking. Always, never, everybody, nobody. Focusing on only the positive or negative. You know, some people will focus on only the positive and they'll not see the negative. So then when something bad happens, it hits them out of the clear blue. Um, yeah, you didn't think that focusing on the positive would necessarily be a bad thing. Now, focusing on the positive generally is good, but not exclusively. Likewise, fo focusing on the negative exclusively is just going to make things seem hopeless and helpless. So be aware of the negative. You know, be realistic. Don't use feelings as facts. If something scares you, it doesn't necessarily mean it's scary. If something depresses you, does it necessarily mean that it's all that depressing or is it bringing up something else for you? And then look at the big picture. You know, if you go in and you take a test at school and you get a D on it, does that mean you're a failure? No, that's one test in one class on one particular occasion. What can you do about it? And that's always come back to how do re we resolve whatever it is that's causing the distress. Negativity and silver lining, again, always encourage clients to look, for, look at both sides. Yes, this happened, and it was unpleasant. It could have been worse. Or what's the positive to this? Self-esteem. View failures as lessons. Encourage people to say, yeah, I got a D on that test. Well, hopefully they don't. But if they get a D on a test, say, I got a D on the test, so that shows me all the things I have to learn. Or last year, oh my gosh, last year, every time I planted something, it died. And I usually do really well with my garden. And I could have gotten all depressed and been like, well, pfft, I've got a brown thumb. But I said, okay, let's take a look at what was different this year as opposed to prior years and learn from it. And this year, the garden's doing pretty well. I've got more zucchini than my kids could ever hope to eat, <laughs> and they hate it. Anyway, applaud courage and creativity in yourself. Encourage clients to look at their um, solutions to things and their courage to try things and pat themselves on the back for it and encourage them to nurture their inner child. And I know that's an old concept, but we all have a little kid inside of us that just wants approval. So instead of constantly saying, you need to do better, you need to do more, you suck, saying, wow, what a good job. You did as much as you needed to do, and you succeeded. That's what the, you know, we need to tell ourselves more often. Do we want to keep encouraging ourselves to grow? Yes, but there needs to be rewards for what we've achieved. And that inner child also needs to go to the park and hang out and have fun once in a while. So don't be afraid to encourage both sides, have people encourage both sides of themselves. So there's the serious grown-up person that has to adult sometimes, but then there's also the person who wants to watch Scooby-Doo and eat grilled cheese. Maybe that's just me. Exercise increases serotonin, reduces stress, helps balance hormones and neurochemicals, and may help combat some medication side effects. 
one of the other reasons for medication noncompliance and treatment noncompliance in people with bipolar disorder is that the medications can be flattening, exhausting. Um, a lot of people tend to gain weight when they're on the medications because they're so exhausting, they just don't have a lot of energy. Um, so exercise can help. And I am not saying tell them to go out and run a marathon. Just get up and walk around the block, play with the dog, do something to get the blood moving. Nutrition. Provide the building blocks for the neurochemicals. Remember, quality proteins and three colors on a salad plate. Like I said, the medications for um, mood stabilizing often gives people the munchies. So if they want to um, try to prevent weight gain, using a salad plate, that's more than enough. Your stomach is about the size of your balled-up fist. And the next time you're looking at a big old dinner plate heaped with spaghetti, look at your fist and go, ooh, that's going to be a really full belly. Stay hydrated to keep medication levels stable. Antipsychotics and mood stabilizers are notorious for having sort of unattended um, side effects when people get dehydrated. And we see a lot more um, admissions to the crisis stabilization unit when, when I lived in Florida when it got really hot outside because people who were on those types of medications and who worked outside or, or were homeless tended to have unstable levels of those medications in their system. And then encourage people to avoid mindless or comfort eating because that will add to, um, add to the weight gain and potentially um, contribute to other health side effects. Sleep helps the body repair and rebalance. Sleep deprivation is known to trigger depressive and manic episodes. Too much sleep or sleeping at the wrong times can also mess up circadian rhythms. So if the person is sleeping all the time or, you know, seemingly all the time, then they're not going to be getting good quality sleep. Likewise, if you've got someone who is in a manic episode and the only time they get sleepy is between 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. every afternoon, probably going to start monkeying with their circadian rhythms. So being aware of this and figuring out how to help them address it um, is going to be helpful in their long-term recovery. If they have to take a nap, the recommendation is to keep daytime naps to less than 45 minutes per day once a day. So I'm not saying four 45-minute naps, no. Um, unless you're recovering from illness or something like that, try to keep daytime naps to less than 45 minutes so you don't get into that deep, deep sleep. And then medication. Adjust dosage times to fit your schedule. Um, I had a couple of clients when I worked in Virginia that uh, were on mood-stabilizing medications, and they had a really good psychiatrist who helped them figure out when to take their medication. And, of course, it was up to the patient to kind of chart. If I take it at 7 and then I have to get up at 7 the next morning, is it out of my system? So the clients knew generally how long it took them to get out of the fog from taking whichever medication they were taking. And they could adjust it a little bit, you know, an hour here or there if they had to get up earlier or they could sleep later. Discuss negative side effects with their doctor. It's important because negative side effects generally lead to medication noncompliance. And they need to not expect a pill to do everything. Just because they're taking a mood stabilizer doesn't mean that it can combat poor sleep habits, poor eating habits, and just incessant negativity. And that's something that 
they've learned that they're going to have to unlearn. Interpersonally, support groups are huge. People who've been there can understand. Um, so having people that you can reach out to going, I think I've got a manic episode coming on or I don't feel like I can break out of this place that I'm in right now is great. Now, is it a replacement for therapy? No. But it's important that the other seven, six point, you know, nine, eight days of the, of the week, the clients have somewhere else that they can turn. We don't want clients developing a dependence on us and calling us at, you know, two in the morning going, I'm really depressed and I need to talk. I want them to have a support system. Um, make sure saying that, make sure that they do have an emergency plan with numbers to the crisis center, 911, and they know how to get to the local emergency room if they do become um, suicidal or homicidal. Chat rooms are excellent um, for people that have uh, bipolar disorder, depression, addiction. There are groups online in the rooms. It's a great place to go for addiction issues. Encourage them to loop in the in-the-know family and friends. Now, I'm not saying every family member needs to know about it because that's not true, probably not even healthy. But the people who do know, loop them in and have them maybe have a key word that they say. If they notice that you're starting to exhibit some signs of an impending manic or depressive episode or have them feel comfortable enough that they can come up to you and go, you know, I've noticed these things and I'm a little worried. And encourage self-awareness of the Jekyll Hyde Syndrome. It is really difficult um, for people who are, especially if they don't know what's going on, um, to understand the behaviors of people who have bipolar disorder because they'll seem, you know, up and they'll be so easy to get along with and they'll be so productive for two or three weeks and then all of a sudden, crash. Uh, so being aware of these and trying to attenuate them in the workplace and at home, but also um, for people who need to know, like supervisors, just being aware that it, it's important to let them know what's going on as best as you feel comfortable and um, so they can work with you. Environmentally, and I don't often talk about essential oils, but um, aromatherapy, smells are some of our greatest triggers for memories. They can be very relaxing. They can be very overstimulating as well. There are hundreds of essential oils. I just pick a few that I am more familiar with. Um, it's really important for each person to go to a store and actually test them, smell them. When I use essential oils with my animals, um, especially since they can't say, ew, uh, I'll take them out. I'll let them sniff the essential oil if they seem to like it. Then I can put it on their... Um, halter or their collar if they don't like it then that's obviously not for them um, for example with with a couple of our donkeys essential oils are great they love valerian but lavender does nothing for them so anyway energizing essential oils peppermint or any of the mints rosemary and lemon tend to make people feel brighter and more energized calming essential oils lavender chamomile valerian catnip believe it or not um, bergamot, rose, and frankincense. Memory triggering, and this isn't really an essential oil, but if it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, um, it might be worth considering. Some of them are ginger, clove, cinnamon, orange, and jasmine, um, but 
others. I mean, I smell pine salt and I remember being at my grandma's house. So creating an environment that makes you happy and calm is what we're going for. Organization will help reduce some stress, but it's also important, especially for people who go into full-out manic episodes, that they know how to manage impulse items. If they feel a manic episode coming on and they know they typically go out and try to drive 150 on the interstate, they need to know where they're, what to do with their car keys so they can't get up at 2 in the morning and go out and do that. Credit cards, same thing. If they know that they typically um, will spend excess, being able to either have somebody hold their credit cards, put them in a safe deposit box. Some people actually freeze them in a block of ice, so then the ice has to melt before they can get to them. Whatever it takes for them to manage it so they don't have immediate access to something that could cause them harm. Porn sites, video games, and alcohol all three of them are addictive behaviors that can be used to excess. So, can you eliminate them? Can you put on filters? What can you do to manage these so when a manic episode occurs or a depressive episode, um, you don't have immediate access? During the day, keep it light and bright so your circadian rhythms stay kind of in tune. And be aware that depression, um, especially de depressive episodes, can co-occur with suicidality and addictive behaviors and self-medication. Mania, you know, obviously we're talking about excessive and impulsive behaviors. People can become explosive in their anger, and typically it's heightened libido and a lot of risk-taking behaviors which can have legal and physical consequences. Bipolar is caused by neurochemical imbalances, especially among serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, our big three. The symptoms and presentation vary widely, number one, depending on where they are on the spectrum and whether they are um, rapid cycling or whether they're having mixed episodes, yada, yada, yada. Encourage clients to keep that three to six month log of what's going on because then you can look back and see if there are certain things that may be triggering an episode. It's more important to address each symptom, identify warning signs, and eliminate or mitigate triggers and vulnerabilities than to start trying to address the big thing or worry about whether someone's bipolar 1 or bipolar 2. You know, that's more important for the doc. In counseling, we need to look at the symptoms and go, all right, how's it impacting you? What needs to change and how can we do it? Treatment compliance is huge because mood stabler, stabilizers tend to flatten the highs like we talked about. Um, so encouraging clients to be very forthcoming with how they're feeling. The most dangerous times for suicidal ideation in people with bipolar disorder are when they're coming out of a depressive episode because they've got enough energy to get off the couch and do something drastic, or during, during a mixed episode when they have energy but also the depression. Ensure people with bipolar disorder have a crisis plan and people who interact with them daily who are aware of their warning signs and symptoms. People with co-occurring addictions also need to be aware that a bipolar episode or a bipolar relapse, whatever you want to call it, can trigger an addiction relapse and vice versa. So they need to be aware of what's going on and stay mindful of how they're feeling emotionally, mentally, and physically.